Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALR PRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is Chicago-based intellectual property attorney Nancy K. Ducharme. She has nationwide clients who use her law firm services for copyright and trademark searches, registrations, litigation, and advertising review. Attorney Ducharme has over 20 years' experience in copyright and trademark matters. Her website can be found at www.nkdlaw.com. Again, nkdlaw.com. Copyright and trademark law can appear straightforward. However, these areas of law are quite complex and can be academically challenging. Too often, small businesses' marketing teams end up defending legal actions for infringement because they never sought the advice of an intellectual property counsel before using a trademark in commerce. Small business owners might also experience copyright issues, which could become costly. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme is here today to help spot some issues so fewer small business owners learn the hard way. Before we begin, we want to remind you that the Consumer's Law Journal airs every Tuesday and the Lawyer's Toolbox airs on Thursday afternoons. Both Law Talk radio shows air at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 o'clock Pacific. We have a great show for you this afternoon, and we invite callers to call in and ask their questions by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. The telephone number, again, is area code 917-889-9732, option 1. Please also use our email, info at alrpra.com. Again, that's info at alrpra.com to submit a question uh, during non-show hours to be read uh, at an upcoming show. Or if you're lucky, your email will go through during the show and uh, we'll we'll ask your question. Um, Nancy Ducharme, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, uh, Nick. Thank you for inviting me here. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with your audience. All right, excellent. Before we begin, we want to give the general disclaimer. This is a general information program, and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on the specific facts of your legal matter. You're encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to comments made on this show. All callers remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Nancy, let's get started by a discussion of copyright and trademark, uh, again, protection and policing for small businesses. Um, well, uh, just to give a, a basic overview or definition as to how they differ, and sometimes they can even be the same thing, uh, there could be a trademark, for example, which is composed of artwork. Think of Tony the Tiger, the cartoon, for example, that is covered by both uh, trademark law as well as copyright. It's copyright image uh, in the artwork. So copyright, in short, will apply to anything that constitutes uh, creative output. Uh, it does not protect ideas, but it does protect the expression of ideas as they've been set forth in tangible form. So if someone writes a book, uh, the, the ideas expressed in the book are not protectable. However, uh, the text, the words used, you know, structure of a uh, play uh, would all be protectable items uh, that are protected under copyright law. In terms of the uh, trademark protection, trademark uh, applies to uh, symbols, words, slogans, Anything that functions as a source identifier uh, to the consumer or the relevant market to indicate that uh, this is a particular business's offerings of goods or services. So uh, even a small child who is sitting in a car uh, would glimpse the uh, golden arches of McDonald's and know that that you know, means happy meal in their future. Um, they know nothing about corporate America, nothing about you know who owns this. They don't understand how... You know, Burger King is different, or Wendy's is different. What they do know, however, uh, by seeing this symbol and how it, it operates, is that this, in fact, is, is uh, a particular company that um, they're familiar with. So that is uh, kind of a rough idea of copyright and, and trademark. 
Uh, in terms of how it can apply to small businesses, uh, just about every business is going to have one or the other. Uh, you know, issues arise in, in the context of both. If you are hanging out your shingle and uh, or your signage for your business, uh, and unless you are just simply dry cleaner, which is a you know generic term and, and not a trademark at all, any kind of uh, identifier to designate who your business is to the public is in fact a trademark. Uh, so there are some issues we can talk about a bit later on in terms of how to properly clear and protect that. Uh, if you have engaged uh, an ad agency to do an ad for you, you've hired a photographer to take photos for a brochure, you have a web designer who has designed uh, a website for your company, all those are creative works which are protected under copyright law. So it's important to understand how that works so that the company can properly obtain the rights to use uh, that creative output. Um, the law will assume, for example, that uh, the creator, the independent contractor, uh, is the owner of uh, creative output unless there is you know, an assignment that uh, assigns the rights over to the company or if that person who created it is, in fact, an employee of the company. So think, for example, the difference between a computer program, which is copyrightable, that was created by uh, employees of a company. The company, by virtue of the employment relationship, will own automatically uh, the copyright in that work. Uh, if, however, it was an outside uh, company of programmers who had designed the uh, computer program who developed it, the law will assume the contrary, that in fact they're the owners of it. Now, when you have a copyright in whether it's a document or artwork, what are the steps that one needs to take to protect that? Well, under U.S. law, the current version of U.S. law, which has been in place for quite some time, um, there isn't really a lot you need to do. Your uh, creative output that has been expressed in creative form is protected the moment that it is fixed in that creative form. So if you are typing up a... Uh, you know, the great American novel that you have just written, uh, the moment you save it to your hard drive, the copyright has been born. It, it exists at that moment in time. Um, the same is true if you were doing a painting. The minute you put the uh, paintbrush to canvas and then you, you put your um, paintbrush down, you own a copyright in even the, the rough uh, elements that have been uh, put to canvas at that moment in time. And I think that's a, a surprise to a lot of people. They think that there's something extra that they need to do. And we can talk about uh, the registration process, which is a wonderful thing and confers some very uh, important rights to registrants. Uh, but registration is not required uh, for there to be protection. So often you will have people talk about uh, doing what's known as a poor man's copyright, where they will... Uh, sort of memorialize uh, the creation of a song or uh, whatever um, else that they're seeking to protect, um, document that and mail it to themselves and then not open the envelope with the idea that this is going to be evidence of their creation date. Um, my response to that is always, you know, for a relatively nominal fee, why not get the real deal? Uh, again, you get important benefits to registration uh, and file for uh, federal registration of the copyright. Um, and, and, you know, it's, again, depending on what it is that you are registering, it's probably in the, in the ballpark of $45 or so um, and well worth the, uh, the, uh, the price of, of the registration because of the, the benefits that you obtain from the registration. Would you like Nancy, me to address what some of those benefits are? Oh, yeah, please. I have a question after you're done, but go ahead. Uh, the red key thing for uh, obtaining a registration, the benefits you receive is that, number one, if you wanted to sue, uh, it's a prerequisite for maintaining a federal lawsuit. Otherwise, if you had not registered the work, uh, you will have your suit dismissed and you'll have to seek registration and then refile. Uh, so that's important. And, and sometimes folks that have not registered are going to be in the position of uh, doing an expedited registration, which is going to cost significantly more than the, the 40 some odd dollars I mentioned earlier. Um, but a more important benefit, uh, besides the ability to uh, 
maintain your your lawsuit is that when you prevail in your lawsuit against the infringer, uh, assuming you win your case, uh, you can collect statutory damages and attorney's fees against the infringing party. Uh, so that's quite important because otherwise all you would ever collect would be the um, actual damages you've suffered. And, and if you are a uh, beginning um, novelist, uh, someone who doesn't have a uh, fully developed market yet, maybe the market uh, value is not reflective of your, your talents as of yet. Uh, so it would be much more important for you in that circumstance to be receiving these statutory damages as opposed to uh, what the current market value is uh, of the infringed work. When, Nancy, when someone has a uh, work that they are going to register, um, is there any way for them to find out first if they are potentially already infringing or what if they found parts of it from, yeah, I mean, let's say you work at a company and someone else put it together and you were the person with the uh, end of the responsibility line, you want to make sure everything is fine. Is that is it similar to with trademarks? And I know you're going to address trademark searches. Um, is there anything similar in the world of copyright? Um, well, I, I think there are a couple of questions in, in the question you just asked me. Um, it, so let me try to break it apart if I can. Um, you really don't need to do the same kind of homework that we'll talk about with respect to determining whether you're, you're first to the market in the trademark arena because infringement is based on uh, sort of who was, who was first uh, in the consumer's um, mind. Uh, that's not true of, of copyright. Theoretically, you can have independent folks writing the same novel, and uh, so long as they never had seen or heard of each other, um, you know, they are each entitled to have a copyright in their independently created work. Now, you know, perhaps it's an incredible thing. Maybe we don't believe the person who claims to have independently developed it. That'll be up to a court to decide, uh, because if it's substantially similar and, and the party had access to the original work, then perhaps that belies the, the notion that, in fact, it was, uh, you know, created on their own without reliance on anything else. But, you know, the, the example I generally give is if someone were on a, a desert island and writing a novel on coconut shells and then were rescued and it turns out that their, their novel when they return to uh, the mainland it is very similar to the latest Stephen King novel, uh, they'd never read it, they'd never seen it, they had no access to it, uh, that party is not an infringer uh, despite the similarities because, again, it, it, um, it, there was never any copying uh, or access to the original work. So copyright is not um, really based on how close something comes. Is rather, you know, was the infringement, uh, is there evidence of infringement because of the similarity of the work? Um, the other question that was lurking in your, uh, or point that was lurking in your overall question had to do with uh, what kind of sort of due diligence someone might need to do if they're charged by their company with doing the registration process. I guess uh, I'd point to the the issue before if, if in fact this is a corporation and it's a collective group of employees who has prepared the work, the corporation is going to own that copyright uh, under the work for hire aspect because it was all done as part of the responsibilities of, of the pool of employees. None of them individually uh, are going to have a piece of any of it. Um, if, however, there were components or um, contributions to the whole that were done by outsiders, independent contractors, then, again, ideally there would have been an assignment of rights over to the corporation from those outsiders so that the corporation can properly file the registration in its name. Okay. Well, that clears that up. Um, now, what if there is an allegation of infringement down the line um, and you've done all your homework and um, have done what you could reasonably do to uh, properly register your copyrighted material, what happens when someone sees something they believe is copyright infringement? What usually happens? Um, I, uh, let me ask you a question. Are you talking about you are the party who believes your work has been infringed or you're the, de the potential defendant here? You believe that your work has been infringed. Okay. Well, um, if you have found signs that your work has been infringed, I think like any other 
pre-litigation activity, you should be working with your counsel to try to ascertain the facts and, and determine um, whether, in fact, it is infringement or a coincidence or, you know, what the explanation is. Um, and possibly even, um, you know, reach out to the parties and ask them questions, maybe hire a private investigator if that needs to be done. Um, but like any other, you know, litigation activity, it, usually there's there's some kind of... Uh, analysis that needs to be done before people, you know, randomly file a complaint and, and uh, sue. Uh, so hopefully, you know, there's been some reasonable homework uh, that's been done in advance. Because as I say, mere uh, common use of the same ideas or coincidental use may not be an infringement. It just may be that uh, someone independently thought of the same thing uh, and, you know, it may be a remarkable coincidence, but it's only infringement if there's been copying. Uh, so th that's the key thing there. Nancy, I want to pause for a quick break, uh, and then I'll get back to a couple more questions about copyright before we go on to trademark. And I would like to let everyone know that Nancy is actually uh, one of our sponsors. Um, when you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, Internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the Like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates of recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. By the way, for those of you who are recently tuning in, you're listening to the Consumer's Law Journal. We encourage listeners to call in with questions by dialing area code 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732, and press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. We also want to remind people that this is a general information show, and the information contained here does not constitute legal advice, and you should contact an attorney if you have questions similar to those that are discussed on the show. Uh, back to you, Nancy. I have a follow-up question about copyright. Sure. Um, first, did you have any more comments on uh, allegations of infringement or litigation or settlement of the process? Well, I mean, that, that would probably be the topic of another show in its entirety because litigation <laughs> uh, uh, can certainly be complex. And, and I do think that uh, one of the reasons that I enjoy copyright so much is it's a very intellectually challenging uh, area of the law and, uh, you know, quite complicated. Uh, so it's it's certainly not something that uh, is easily uh, discussed in, in a short time frame other than sort of general guidelines. But um, Certainly. One of the questions that I had uh, regards the use of clip art and photos, and I know that I've seen several pictures online that represent certain uh, ideas or concepts. I've seen them repeated in multiple uh, individuals' marketing materials or certain pictures that we just see over and over, uh, and there is a wide variety, it seems, of uh, knowledge based on what you can and can't do based on uh, images that you find online. Uh, are some of these you know, free to use for anyone? Are there certain sites that have free use photos? How does that work? Well, I, you really need to read the licensing restrictions that um, are part of the, the contract that is formed. A license is a fancy name for a, an intellectual property contract. Uh, and so when you're clicking on uh, a site to download a particular file, uh, it's likely that you'll have a pop-up screen that is going to give you the terms of service uh, and explain to you what the limitations and rights uses are. Uh, and you have to carefully read those. Or even if you had purchased some software, uh, you know, which is you know, 50,000 clip art images, you, you need to carefully read uh, the parameters of, of what is being granted to you. Is it for personal use only? Is it for um, you know, use in the United States only? Um, it, it, just as a general point, uh, all intellectual property rights are territorially limited, and we do have treaties that exist between the United States and, and other countries uh, where we agree to protect um, our 
their citizens works in our country if they do the same. Um, but still, that means that there may be some need to take extra steps in those jurisdictions to extend the protection. So uh, owning a trademark in the United States, for example, or having a copyright registration here does not necessarily mean it's free and clear to use throughout the world. Um, you, again, you need to, to uh, work with uh, appropriate foreign counsel in other jurisdictions, as I've needed to do in the past for my clients. Uh, so, again, in terms of the license deal, you have to look at the terms. If, in fact, it says this is, uh, you know, public domain use, you're free to take it, all uses are possible, well, then great. There aren't any restrictions imposed on you, and, and that's fine. But that is not often the case. There there well may be uh, restrictions or promises that are made, and you're forming a contract, so in addition to possibly being sued for infringement, um, you could be sued for breach of contract because your use is violating uh, the terms of service. So don't assume the free pictures are always free pictures. And I, I think that's a point worth bearing with respect to the Internet generally. Um, often people will see that there's not a copyright notice, for example, and therefore they'll make the false assumption that lack of notice means dedication to the public domain. Uh, that is also not the case. Uh, the current version of the copyright statute does not require that there be uh, a notice. It's a good idea for the owner of the copyright to include such notice, but it, it is not required for its protection. Uh, so therefore the absence of notice does not mean, you know, take me, I'm yours. <laughs> That's not the uh, assumption that should be drawn. Um, and just because we don't know who the owner of the copyright is, it doesn't mean there is not an owner somewhere. Uh, so the assumption or default uh, should always be that there is in fact an owner. It may be an unknown entity, but you certainly know it's not you. You know, you're, you're not the one who created that photograph. Uh, you're not the one who created that, that image or drawing. Uh, and therefore, although it, it uh, looks appealing to do a, a quick copy and paste, uh, unless there's some defense to this, a fair use defense, for example, uh, you may be getting yourself into hot water. All right. I'm looking for callers to see if we have any callers with questions about trade or uh, copyright. First, we move on to trademark. Um, if callers do have questions, 917-889-9732, option one. Uh, moving on now to trademark. Um, Nancy, can you tell us again, remind us some of the distinctions between the copyright and trademark? Well, uh, again, a trademark is going to be a source identifier. So a uh, one word could function as a trademark. Um, one word would not be copyrightable because there's not sufficient creativity. The copyright, for example, does not generally cover titles of works, um, but a title could function as a trademark. Uh, so it will be anything, a symbol, slogan, what have you, that is serving as a source designator. Sometimes there's an overlap, and uh, my Tony the Tiger example was that. It's both a copyrightable piece of artwork, uh, as well as serving as a source identifier. Um, but because trademark will cover you know, symbols, think of the Nike swish mark, and uh, uh, even color in some circumstances, it, it, it covers uh, anything that, that uh, denotes a particular source to the consuming public. Now, how do we know when we see something that is a trademark or is not a trademark that's someone else's? Do they necessarily have to use the symbol? Well, if it's a regist registered trademark, federally registered, probably the owner is going to want to flag that by putting the uh, circle R, the registration symbol. But again, the lack of the symbol does not mean that the owner has given away anything or conceded any rights. I kind of... Uh, consider it to be sort of like a, a trust, no trespass sign. Um, so there, if there's a, a common law mark that, you know, it's not federally, federally registered, often the owner will designate that by putting a TM uh, superscript or perhaps even an SM 
superscript if it's a service mark. Um, but again, if they fail to do that, that does not mean that you know it's, it does not work as a mark. Usually marks are going to be set off. They're going to have a peculiar uh, typeface, uh, stylized version, or they're going to be in all capital letters. Um, something to indicate that this is a special word, this is a special slogan, this is something that, that we're claiming uh, rights to. Uh, so that that's the kind of thing that uh, is important. And if you are the owner of a trademark, it's important that you adopt appropriate standards. Avoid, for example, using uh, a trademark as a verb or as a noun. It would be improper to say we're going rollerblading this weekend. That would be misuse of a trademark. You would say we're going to go inline skating using our rollerblade brand skates. That's difficult for me to say uh, quickly. But, uh, so to indicate to the public, again, flag the, the point that this is, is a trademark. Otherwise, there's always a risk, uh, using it as a verb or noun, that you're genericizing the term, and that could result in, mis in, in really a loss of trademark rights. Um, that has happened in the past, unfortunately, to some brand owners. I have a question again about the trademark versus service mark. Can you highlight again the difference? Um, really, the overall umbrella term is going to be trademark, um, but uh, if you're using the mark for services, we properly call it a service mark. It's just one type of a trademark. Uh, so if you're using it for goods, uh, it's going to be considered a trademark. But again, the, it's a bit confusing because the umbrella term for, for both of them is it falls under trademark, and so uh, thus the confusion to some. But uh, we are just generally talking about uh, trademarks, which encompass service marks as well. I just have noticed that many uh, companies are now using uh, an SM designation where they hadn't before. Uh, let's take a call, uh, if that's okay, Nancy. Sure. Caller, you're on the air with Nancy Ducharme and Nick Augustine. Go ahead. Hi. Um, Nancy, I have a question about what you were saying about um, when the um, trademark gets uh, genericized. Um, would that have been what like, kind of happened to Kleenex, Band-Aid kind of thing? Well, I certainly hope it hasn't happened to them yet because they take great steps to try to prevent that from occurring. But, yes, that is the risk. And, in fact, you may have seen in the past or recently um, ads done by Xerox because that's another mark that has uh, been popularized to the point of uh, creating some anxiety for their legal department, I'm sure. Um, if, if they do not uh, succeed in, in uh reaffirming to the world that this, in fact, is a protected mark and uh, reminding newspaper editors and everyone else to please, you know, respect the mark and always uh, use it properly, then, yeah, unfortunately what has happened in the past to Aspirin and Escalator uh, could also happen to other brands where they uh, fall into public domain use and no one has rights to it. Uh, is, is, my, that, is that ahead, done by, like a court case? Yes, usually that would happen in a court case where the court, um, let's say uh, the plaintiff trademark owner had sued a defendant infringer uh, and perhaps the counterclaim by the defendant was, well, you're claiming we infringed your mark and our, our position is there is nothing to infringe because your, your mark has gone generic. So if the court is persuaded by the evidence that that's in fact the case, that, that consumers have adopted it, and maybe there's going to be a uh, survey evidence of consumer usage or uh, newspaper articles or you know net examples of people using it improperly, maybe a court may conclude that in fact the uh, term is generic and uh, then the trademark owner would have lost rights to the term and everyone else can use it at that point. That's a so bad result for anyone who's invested heavily in their in their asset. So even if you have the 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 TM the SM um it's more watching that it doesn't get used in common language. Yes, I think it's all of the above. I think that, you know, a, a trademark owner has to be vigilant uh on many fronts and and it's like any other form of property. Uh let's assume that you owned some land and it was in a rural area, you'd probably have to watch it occasionally 
drive by, see if uh, there are squatters that have uh, encroached your property and are, are living in the, in the yard or whatever, uh, because otherwise you may lose the rights to your own property after uh, some period of time. Uh, so proper trademark policing is going to be vigilant to look to see are there any infringement uh, actions going on, are there misuses of your trademark, uh, and to try to take appropriate steps and, and send out warnings to those folks and say, we're watching you, keep it up, we'll sue you. Uh, file the suit when you need to to protect the mark uh, and you know, keep an eye out for, for misuse. All of those activities are important uh, to protect the asset. And uh, you know, trademarks are a very valuable asset uh, to businesses and because, again, they serve to distinguish one from the other. So uh, just like any other form of property, you, you have to you know, keep, a, keep an eye peeled and, and make sure that you're taking all steps to, uh, to protect that asset. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate the call. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, caller. Okay. I think this is a good time to pause for our th- second sponsor, Thank you again for tuning in to Consumer's Law Journal on Law Talk Radio, where we're listening to attorney Nancy K. Ducharme talk about copyright and trademark protection and policing. Do you want to get clients now? We all do. There's a seasoned attorney and a marketing coach we all need to talk to. His name's Jim Thompson, and his program's called Get Clients Now. Jim will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenue, and the Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referral. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show, which is our Thursday show regarding attorney marketing. Uh, Jim is going to be calling in uh, frequently at the end of our shows to uh, give us his marketing tips du jour. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net. Also, check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by visiting MidwestConsultants.net. A reminder to more callers, please keep calling in. We love your questions. The telephone number, 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732. Also want to remind you that this is a general information program and the advice on this show does not constitute legal advice and you should always check with and consult a professional on point in your current location. Back to Attorney Nancy Ducharme. Nancy, uh, Thank you for taking our caller's question. Uh, I have a question now, if you're ready. Sure. Okay. My next question is, how can uh, individuals, we were talking about the selection of different marks and the various options available, how should someone work with a legal professional? Uh, Let's say they work at a marketing company and uh, a client has come to them and says, I really want this slogan. This really captures, captures our essence. Um, I want to do this, and uh, you know, oftentimes uh, we see that you know that can people can run afoul that way. What's your experience with that, and what would you recommend to those who work in the advertising industry as far as working with uh, intellectual property professionals? Well, I think before someone falls in love with a, a trademark, uh, the prudent thing to do is to determine whether you're actually going to be able to acquire rights in that mark uh, and make it your own, or whether you're going to be really investing in a potential lawsuit, which would be a very bad idea. Um, and, and, you know, good money spent for, for not uh, such a good result. Uh, so the, the recommended course of action is that prior to adoption of the mark, uh, appropriate searching be done. Um, there can be coexisting, coexisting uses of the same word mark, for example, if they're in non-competitive uh, businesses. Think about uh, Delta is a mark. Uh, it's used for Delta Airlines, but it also coexists uh, for use by Delta faucets. They're not in the same field, so they both are entitled to use the term, uh, and there is no resulting trademark confusion. Uh, so usually what a professional uh, a, a, a trademark attorney will do uh, would be to do some searching for the client, maybe a preliminary search first sort of to test the, the market to see if there are any obvious blocks and followed up by the uh, full search report, uh, which is usually done by an outside company that has access to various databases of uh, registry information as well as 
Dun and Bradstreet information, uh, journal articles, industry articles that may be relevant to indicate whether, in fact, uh, the, the mark has already been, been used by someone else. And we're not just looking at identity, you know, exact uh, duplication of words or in the exact same order. Transposition of terms can cause confusion. Uh, similar meanings of words, phonetic similarities, um, the mark, uh, the word mark Excel, for example, uh, we'd have to be considering uh, the letters X and L because to the ear they sound the same. And if they were advertising the radio, uh, the listener may not know if it was the word Excel or the letters XL uh, because they sound very, very much the same. So the, the search company will have uh, the appropriate algorithm plugged in uh, to, to do equivalent searching, and um, hopefully the professional searchers pulled up uh, uh, appropriate references. These searches are not necessarily perfect, uh, but they're the best tool that we have to really gauge what kind of risk uh, may be incurred by adoption of a mark. Um, and then the next phase, once that information is obtained, might be uh, to undertake some follow-up. Uh, you know, is this company still around? If Are they, in fact... Uh, in the same line of business, uh, can coexistence uh, be possible? Or, again, um, is this too risky? Will the client be, be buying into a lawsuit? Uh, with one exception to the rule, which has to do with intent to use trademarks, the rule is generally that it's the first to the market who wins. So, uh, and the test is likelihood of consumer confusion. So, uh, depending on what the market is and, and what the particular mark uh, is and who's using it, um, those are all relevant considerations in the analysis of whether a mark is, is available and cleared uh, for registration purposes. But there's really no substitute for doing a proper search. The worst result would be to adopt a mark blindly, keep your fingers crossed, hope for the best, uh, heavily invest in the mark, you know, trot out, uh, big splash announcement to all your customers, um, and then after the fact, in the face of a lawsuit or threatened lawsuit uh, or court order to cease and desist, uh, having to throw away everything and, and start fresh. How often does that actually happen? Um, I, I don't know that there's a percentage of, of that. Certainly, you know, anybody who's been in the wrong end of an infringement uh, case would would attest to, uh, you know, how expensive that might be. But, uh, you know, again, the, the prudent customer will make sure it doesn't happen. You know, the, the prudent uh, entity will be doing searching ahead of time and um, making sure that they've done their homework uh, so that they're they're avoiding uh, unnecessary litigation. Now, do they really need a lawyer to do that searching, or can they do that on their own? And I know that I've seen ads on TV um, with several, uh, I think Legal Legal Zoom is one, and there are several companies that um, not that are non-attorneys that offer those services. Can you speak a little bit about those? Well, I, I'm honestly not familiar with the services of Legal Zoom or any of the other companies to comment on them. I, I don't know if they, in fact, employ attorneys or paralegals or, or how they do what they do. Uh, and I, I thought that they might be more in the registration arena uh, as opposed to doing searching. Um, mm. The Patent and Trademark Office records are online. Um, they are at www.uspto.gov. Uh, so certainly, um, you know, I encourage people to do their own free searching uh, on that website. The, the difficulty, though, is that uh, you know the individual consumer may not think of the transposed terms or the uh, phonetically similar equivalents or the words that are uh, similar in meaning. Um, because all of those are, are issues that, that are relevant. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you can't always tell that, gee, there's no one who's using this exact mark. That may well be true, but you may still have a problem if, in fact, someone else's usage is, is close enough. Um, because close enough, if it causes confusion, is still an issue. So I, whoever uh, they consult with, uh, you know, whatever type of uh, professional, I would imagine they'd want to consult with trademark counsel, but uh, that, that is what I recommend that they do, that they, they go that route and, and uh, use appropriate steps. There's some, some places it makes sense to do things on your own, and some places it, it doesn't really make any sense to do it. And this is one of those that I think uh, 
there's no there's no um, good reason to do it on your own. It, it you know it, it just invites risk. Nancy, before we move on to our uh, next point, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about trademark policing. Can we just hop back? Can you tell the story? I know we've talked before about this. Can you tell the story about the teeth? Um, what did, what did you mean by the teeth? You're going to have to refresh my memory on this. Uh, the teeth, the man who made his own teeth. Oh, all right, thank you. Um, sometimes I tell this to uh, it, it, to people about doing their own work. Uh, there was a uh, guest on The Tonight Show years ago. Uh, he appeared with uh, Jay Leno. Um, he was down in Arkansas and uh, another uh, state, uh, and I don't believe in his rural area that there were uh, a lot of dentists or perhaps he couldn't afford uh, seeing a dentist. Anyway, um, he wound up uh, creating out of stone a beautiful set of replacement teeth. He did his own surgery, cut out his teeth, and uh, implanted these these beautiful, very sturdy teeth that were quite impressive. And although Jay Leno was a bit squeamish to hear, you know, how he had extracted his own teeth and done his own dentistry, um, he obviously had done a great job because he, he had beautiful teeth. So sometimes I will tell this anecdote to people who want to do a lot of their legwork on their own. You know, is it possible? Sure. Here, here's somebody who did his own dentistry. Is it recommended? Probably not. Um, you know, there are great risks in, in doing dental work on your, not to mention the pain involved, uh, but, uh, you know, infection and all kinds of uh, other horrible things can happen, and it's not the recommended course for most of us. So, sure, there are a lot of ways that people can uh, serve to save money and can read up things in their own, but um, I think you have to be prudent with your time as well as any other limited resource. And as a small business owner myself, uh, there are things I can certainly do to save myself some money in my uh, my practice, um, but there are other things that I cannot do well. And, and I hire the professionals to assist me in troubleshooting my computer or in uh, you know working with me on, on various projects when it makes sense economically uh, and for time efficiency to do so. And I think it's also an appropriate choice uh, for someone when they're dealing with, uh, very, again, these very important assets of uh, how you intend to be known to your customers. Your brand is, a, is or should be uh, an important asset, and I think it's, it's a good idea to do it right from the start. Well, I agree, Nancy. Now, you have keyed in on something very that people should really, you know, enjoy that concept that their their mark, their registration, their brand is an asset. And when they want to protect that asset, they want to make sure that their asset remains protected, which segues into uh, our next topic of trademark policing. Uh, trademark policing is something that uh, well-known companies have done for quite some time. And there are a number of tools that, that can be used. Some are expensive, uh, and some uh, other tools, especially due to the Internet, are probably available for everyone. Uh, and so they're good ideas uh, for people to see what's out there. Again, um, you need to keep a watchful, vigilant eye. Is there anybody encroaching on your trademark? Anyone whose rights are you know, getting a little too close to yours? Uh, if you sit on your hands and do nothing, a court... Uh, when you ultimately go to file an infringement action, is not going to be too impressed uh, that you sort of let it go for quite some time and allow this uh, poacher to to build up um, uh, goodwill in its own brand that's perilously close to yours. Uh, so it's important, uh, again, to take all appropriate steps. Uh, some of the search companies I mentioned before, as part of their portfolio services, are going to offer customers uh, what are known as watch services. And they will keep an eye on any new applications uh, to federally register marks that are in, in the uh, mind of the watch company are, are too close to yours. Uh, and they'll send you an appropriate alert uh, so that you can evaluate it yourself. Um, so a lot of larger enterprises, especially those that have invested in brands, are going to engage them in these watch services. I think there are other tools available uh, that maybe periodically uh, you can put on your to-do list, uh, you know, check the who is registry, are there any domain names that have been registered with, you know, .net, .biz, .info, that are hyphenated versions of, of words that are too close to your brand. Um, are they 
being utilized currently or are they just being held and are dormant? Um, if they're being used, are they being used by competitors? Um, what is the nature of the use? So you can do some follow-up on that to evaluate um, the, the possible problem or perhaps rule out uh, that there is a problem occurring. Um, so those are some of the things that could be done. Um, if, in fact, you find out about an infringement, uh, you need to do appropriate follow-up. You know, who, in fact, is first to the market? Who is, who's been using this first? The, the last thing you want to do is send out a cease and desist and then have someone assert, well, we were, we were there first. Um, that, that, would, uh, that would be a, an issue for you. So uh, doing the homework and trying to get some intelligence is important. If you find that there are uh, the customs uh, can can sometimes intervene if they're going to be uh, some um, counterfeit goods that are coming in that are falsely bearing your brand. Uh, you can engage uh, the services of customs to help uh, stop those goods from coming in. If you want a federal registration uh, in the, the uh, brand for the products. Um, eBay has a process as well. If someone is selling uh, fraudulent, infringing items, uh, eBay has a mechanism where the um, uh, owner, trademark owner, can file appropriate paperwork, and then eBay will will help uh, if you follow the procedures correctly, uh, take down uh, the the offering, and uh, that listing will no longer be available. So those are just a few of the mechanisms, and um, I think, uh, Nick, you're aware of Google Alerts. Maybe you want to highlight that because that's something that um, you had actually informed me about because you're more technically savvy in some of the Internet universe than, than I have uh, been with respect to the use of Google and its tools. Well, I appreciate uh, that statement, Nancy, um, and I will take that as a compliment. Let me first read our last sponsor advertisement, and then we will go on to uh, – I'll talk about Google Alerts for a second – our third sponsor is credit damage expert George Finder. He's a credit damage expert who can put a dollar amount on credit damages. One of the only credit, damager, credit damage experts in the country, clients have retained his services, have earned huge damage awards, uh, and damage plaintiffs in various practice areas have used the credit damage analysis services and trial testimony of uh, credit damage expert George Finder. By learning to incorporate credit damage questions into the intake process, you'll learn how to spot credit damage as an attorney and credit damage events that are worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder's website is full of resources and a helpful video that explains what he does. www.creditdamageexpert.com. Learn more about George Finder and his expert services. Again, www.creditdamageexpert.com. George is also a recurring guest on the Consumer's Law Journal Tuesday program. He was our guest last week. Uh, he'll be answering questions uh, of our callers uh, and people who send their questions in my email on the first Tuesdays of the month, and we will answer questions and also bring you uh, topical information uh, that is relevant. So, again, callers, if you have final questions during our last segment, please feel free, 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732, option one. Again, this is a general information program and the advice on this show does not constitute legal advice. Back to our conversation with attorney Nancy Ducharme. Uh, Nancy indicated that uh, she and I had talked about Google Alerts and, and I will tell you that um, it's a very wonderful uh, tool to have and use. Anyone who has a Google account, a Gmail account that is, can use the Google Alerts function to identify a phrase that you would like the search engine scrubbers to uh, find and notify you when that phrase appears. So, for example, uh, as a commercial publicist, all of my clients, I have a Google alert for their name. So whenever there's something published online, I'll get an email that I route then into my Outlook into a subfolder for that client. So I'll know if there's activity uh, that's, that's going on there. So I guess how that would apply then to trademarks is that if you had a slogan, you would want to certainly create a Google alert so that Google will email you whenever something appears that you might find of interest. So, for example, ALRPRA, we have a Google alert for ALRPRA so that uh, when, for example, we had uh, Ali Parmalee in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, was on our show last February talking about social media marketing. Uh, she blogged about it on her blog that she was on the ALRPRA radio show, and I got a Google alert 
that Allie Parmalee had made that blog comment. And I otherwise wouldn't have known that she had made that blog comment. So again, Google Alerts is a really excellent way that we can track what the search engine scrubbers are finding online. So um, that's the use that Attorney Ducharme is referring to for trademarks. Is that right? Yeah, I think that would be uh, certainly a very excellent uh, tip for for people, especially because of the uh, you know the fact that it doesn't cost anything, uh, and just another tool in the arsenal uh, to try to appropriately police the mark and, and preserve the the important asset. I'll tell you what else. I think that when you use Google Alerts, um, you know, I'm almost afraid to even say it, but I think that Google likes to know that people are using. And um, although none of us know Google's algorithm for PageRank, and actually PageRank comes from a gentleman's last name. His last name was Page, so not many people know that. But anyway, uh, it's very interesting about the free services are offered by Google um, and others who uh, with this uh, the alert functions. Um, do you have any more comments on, on policing? Because um, I have a question about domains. No, I'm happy to answer domain question. Okay, because it's something that very few people really understand. What's the difference? How does it Between apply? Between a, a trademark and a domain well, name? Right, as far as rights. Um, you know, if I lose the right to, you know, is there any argue, argument there that you have a better right to uh, a trademark? Let's say someone else has a mark. Um, they haven't registered. You want to register your mark, and it happens to be someone else down the street has that as a domain name. What what what's the buzz, or what what are we hearing about with, with regards to domain names and trademark? Well, generally, I mean, if you have a federal registration in, in a mark, and a competitor is going to go and seek a uh, URL that's going to incorporate your trademark to try to drive your customers to their site and thus you know take your business. Uh, you know, that's sort of the equivalent of, of being out in a highway and, and you know, diverting traffic uh, to, to their store instead of yours by, by putting up a big detour sign. Uh, so that that's not a bad idea. Be, uh, <laughs> that can be uh, actionable in, you know, in, in a court, um, but there are also options if it's a .com that's been registered. There are some mechanisms when people have uh, registered their, their URL, their domain, they're agreeing that they, if there is a dispute, that they will submit to arbitration. Now, that's not true of all of the extensions. Uh, so if someone, in fact, is you know, in, in China and, and, and the site is infringing there and it's a Chinese site, um, you, know, you, you may not uh, avail yourself of that. Um, and it's important, too, to note that not every common use of a uh, a domain name is going to be an infringement. There could be legitimate uses of the same word. And I'll go back to my Delta example. You know, who has rights to Delta.com would probably be the first one who registered it. Um, you know, the, the airlines doesn't have superior rights to the faucet uh, people's use of the same word. Um, so if, in fact, they're, they're coexisting non-competitive uh, uses that do not generate consumer confusion, then there is no trademark infringement. Um, so it, it's important, again, to, to go through the analysis and, and to work with uh, appropriate counsel to make sure that um, you know, the, the various parties' rights are, are determined. Um, there's talk, I attended a seminar last fall um, uh, about some of the, the new URLs that, that should be coming up or the extensions um, that will be coming up in the future. and, and um, you know, will that provoke additional litigation? And uh, you know, at least as of last fall, uh, early part of this year, they were st the uh, ICANN group was still hammering out some of the regulations and rules. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of uh, further developments on this front. Um, but you know, domain names are not always going to be viewed as trademarks. You know, sometimes they're the equivalent of a um, you know, a phone number. It's a way for people to find you. So they they certainly are important, and they may well be uh, trademarks, but they're not always automatically trademarks. So um, again, this can get into some you know nuanced discussion here. But um, uh, the, the long and the short of it is, someone is infringing. It, it, it you know they're infringing, and you can take action wherever that's occurring. So it's kind of a short response. 
Okay. Well, Nancy, as there are more uh, developments, as, as we um, indicate in our um, sponsor ad spot for your law firm, that is a rapidly uh, changing area of law, and I suppose the Internet has a lot to do with that. So we look forward to future input from you on that. We have about five minutes left, so I just wanted to follow up in anything that you wanted to uh, advise as far as uh, to the branding and marketing and sales and advertising companies out there, uh, when they should, you know, what other issues may pop up with uh, intellectual property that may not necessarily be IP issues, um, but other reasons uh, that they call attorneys and you are helping uh, individuals with ad copy and uh, such. Well, in ad copy, there are a couple of issues with respect to substantiation, for example, um, speech uh is protected in, in this country under the First Amendment, but if it's false speech, it uh, can be uh, controlled by the government. So, uh, and your competitors can sue you, and consumers can sue, and it could be a, a lot of problems. Uh, so, uh, making sure that any statements that are appearing in the ad copy, uh, whatever it may be, if it's a radio spot or billboard, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, are in fact truthful and uh, not, uh, you know, sleight of hand diversion, uh, which is deceptive to the public. Because again, you could wind up uh, the wrong side of a, a lawsuit or government action with respect to that false speech. Um, if you are using someone else's trademarks, that can be a tricky area. You know, if there's brand uh, comparisons that occur. Uh, it may be okay, you know, there are ads where there are competitors that talk about, you know, how much better their product is than the competitor, um, but you've got to be careful. Um, you know, you don't want to create a, a false affiliation lawsuit where you're touting uh, someone else's mark too prominently. Uh, and then there are also some issues with respect to uh, using celebrity names or images. Uh, there are common law and statutory rights of publicity that uh, celebrities and, and even individuals can enjoy. Uh, so you cannot uh, appropriate someone's image and likeness in advertising um, without their permission, or they will sue you. So, uh, you know, ad copy can be sort of a, a, um, a bucket of legal issues that require careful consideration. Uh, one point I want to raise to Nick uh, is I've had people wonder, you know, how is it that my use of someone's photograph that I had copied on the Internet was, was found? How was this detected? You know, I had copied this image and put it on my, uh, on my site. There are all kinds of tools that are out there, spiders and bots and, you know, these automated systems that will go out and look for digital watermarks that the photographer or copyright holder may have embedded in the image. Um, or other kinds of uh, clues, and they will go out and, and they will seek out these um, these uses. And the next thing you know, you're getting a cease and desist and also a demand to pay damages uh, for the infringement. So uh, a word to the wise, you're better off uh, not you know hiring the lawyer at that point to try to uh, explain you know a defense of, of what you've done, but rather to avoid the problem and respect the rights of others in the first instance. Um, that's always the cheaper course of action and the more prudent course. Again, if you didn't create it, it doesn't belong to you, and uh, you should either secure the rights to use that image or you should uh, obtain uh, appropriate rights or create something on your own and uh, avoid the problem. Always best to create your own work. Nancy, thank you so much for your information today. How uh, can people get in, whole, in touch with you if they so choose? Well, uh, they can certainly call me, um, and they can find uh, my website, my contact information on my website, which is www.nkd, that's Nancy K. Ducharme, nkdlaw.com. Uh, and uh, I welcome, uh, invite people to call me. I'm happy to answer a few general questions uh, over the phone without charging people, uh, and you know, happy to bring new clients on at any time. So if I can be of service, uh, I'm happy to uh, to assist. All right. Thank you very much, Nancy. Um, I'd also like to thank our listeners today for tuning into the Consumer's Law Journal on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. Thank you also to today's sponsors. One, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Two, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group. And three, credit damage expert George Finder. Again, this is a general information program and the advice on this.
note does not constitute legal advice. Results may be vary and are based on specific facts of your legal matter. You are always encouraged to privately consult a professional, and you should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to the comments made on this show. Again, all callers remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. ALRPRA Law Talk Radio's mission is to educate our listening community on relevant legal issues, law practice management concerns, and other means to help law firm clients be well-informed and to help law firms spend more time serving their clients by sharing practice tips and referral sources. Again, ALRPRA's underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Thank you again for tuning in to the uh, Consumer's Law Journal. We'll see you next Tuesday for the next episode. Don't forget also that the Lawyer's Toolbox airs Thursdays at 3. This is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated. We thank you for your time.